Hey, what's up there? Quick note. If you like my show, The Grit, with Chaz Smith of Beach Grit fame, it is now available on its own feed. Pull up your podcast app, search The Grit, and click subscribe. On iTunes, the image hasn't populated yet, but that should get sorted out in short order. Um, We have a new episode coming this Monday, so if you like it, subscribe, and you'll never miss a show. And for all of those who loathe it and all the controversy that spins out DebateGate 2018, you can now avoid it all together. All right? Thanks. Also, in even bigger news, in today's episode, we're introducing a partnership with Spy. Spy has pioneered a technology that they're calling the Happy Lens, and it fits perfectly both with their company ethos, but also the surfers that they sponsor. Their team consists of Mason Ho, Coco Ho, and Alex Gray, all very happy, happy people. Considering that the focus of this podcast is long-form storytelling, we thought it might be fun to hear Alex Gray sharing some of his, quote, happy stories, happy boards, happy trips, and then I can kind of tell you about the happy lens along the way. The problem is, Alex is a super busy guy. Hawaii was great. I was there for a total of 48 hours. Flew home on the red eye last night, and then I'm leaving for Africa at 5 a.m. in the morning. There's a large swell moving across the Atlantic to Europe, and it just conditions look insane. Like, it could be their best swell of the winter. Okay. So Hawaii was fun. I got, I think, what would be the peak of the swell in conditions, and ended up getting some really good waves, um, and just flipped out and jumped on a plane to head across the world. <laughs> when I caught him, he was in between those flights, and he was unpacking his Hawaii boards, repacking boards for Africa, And Alex explained to me that getting new surfboards is something that retains the exact same thrill as it did when he was a kid. The best board I have ever ridden would be a Channel Islands. It was five foot eight and really meant just for tube riding. I don't, I picked purple as a choice. I love color on both boards and it's the only purple board I've ever had. But it was this beautiful dark purple. It had six channels and a little extra foam in it. Waves I would ride like a 6.6 in, and this board would feel like that. The way that Channel Island shaped it, it was like having this hot rocket of speed under your feet, but without the huge rail line. And I went to Alaska with that surfboard and Portugal. Um, And between those two trips, I think it was really some of the best barrels I've ever had. And it was only riding that board. Like I could basically just put that board in my board bag and go, I can pretty much ride what I'm looking for here. Alex will be back mid-show to tell us about the best wave he ever caught on that 5.8 Channel Islands. But in the meantime, you should open up a new browser and you should check out Spy's color and contrast enhancing happy lens. It preserves the natural therapeutic effects of sunlight while providing visual performance enhancements, comfort, and protection. Spy wants this show to thrive and I want to ensure that they know you heard about them here. So we've made that really easy with a promo code. The promo code is podcast. When you use it on spyoptic.com, they'll throw in a free t-shirt or hat. And they've even designed a limited edition Surf Splendor sunglass bag. It's the very first merchandise of any kind that we've ever done. We haven't even gotten t-shirts or stickers yet, but we have a sunglass bag. So you can get it on spyoptic.com, promo code podcast. See happy.
if you've ever done business with the WSL in almost any capacity, you've met Dave Prodan. If you've listened to this show, you might remember that he's the guy who invited me to Surf Ranch. This is actually his 13th year of employment with the WSL, although I think it was the ASP when he first started there as an intern. That makes him among the longest serving employees of the organization. His current title is Senior Vice President of Global Brand Identity. What does he do exactly? I'm still not exactly sure. I wanted to give you a brief kind of one sentence summary of his job description here, but I can't. So I'll just let Dave explain it to you. And I'm also going to leave in this little tiny bit about his origin story, just kind of to provide inspiration for any younger listeners out there as a reminder that whatever organization you work in, just get into something you love, start at the bottom, show up early, stay late, and work your way up. Uh, I started as an intern in 2005 and then got hired in 2006 um, as like a North American media officer. And back then it was real kind of wild west and there weren't a lot of employees so the media role was very like um you know build the website and populate the website and deal with the press and write crisis communication plans and board reports and social media so it's kind of everything and then after the uh the acquisition in late 2012 i focused more on communications and those other responsibilities got split across a bunch of people and departments and then still work pretty closely with communications but the new role as of last June is uh, head of brand, which is a new function for the company, but it's basically we're working on developing a brand voice that can really kind of apply to all the different touch points of the company, um, and hopefully one that, that ties back to some heritage points of surfing in a way that we haven't before, and kind of connect that thread from where we've been to where we're gonna head. So that's the, the work we're doing right now. So what does it look like on a daily for you? It's pretty unique, um, it's pretty busy. Um, so, I mean, it's, we get all sorts of different stuff coming through on the communications front um, from, you know, projects in the works to announcements and partnership plans and getting ready for the season. And then um, the blend of sort of brand and communication is working across, you know, broadcast and social and editorial and liaising with the athletes and trying to figure out how to talk about our, our surfers in a way that um, is authentic and honest, but also in a way that's going to kind of transcend just surfing, um, while not turn off the surfing audience as well. So, um, things like that. And then working with kind of a number of different parts of the organization, um, here at HQ as well as regionally to, uh, build that brand work out, whether that's sort of the North star, the vision, the mission, positioning statements and, and all that. So. What I like most about Dave is that he's actually a fan and proponent of the podcast medium. He hosted his own show, Kill the Messenger, which he only produced six episodes of in 2016, but I highly recommend you go back and listen to them all. We discussed that towards the end of this conversation here today. Um, And even though I've maintained a friendly relationship with Dave, our communications are infrequent. But what's weird is that I know he's listening. I've met listeners in person and they'll say, oh, I feel like I know you, which I can definitely relate to because I listen to plenty of podcasts where I feel the same way about the host. But as an actual host, I try to pretend no one is listening. Otherwise, it would, of course, stymie opinions, my opinions, criticisms, and it would stymie the show altogether. So I just kind of block out an understanding that people listen. However, there are a few people that I consciously 
just kind of enforced to acknowledge are likely listening. And Dave is one of those people. Whenever the topic of the WSL comes up on air, my mind slides a filter over all my thoughts and reminds me to be thoughtful about whatever criticism I'm about to level, which creates a little bit of a personal challenge for me to be critical and honest without denigrating maybe a good work that's been done, which again, it's just a personal challenge, but that's not really my point here. My point here is that whenever I see Dave Proden in person, it's this weird thing where I have to trace all my conversations I've had on air and wonder, shoot, is he going to be pissed at me? Did I say something offensive at some point? And it's a very interesting and new dynamic for me. But in reality, I don't necessarily feel that way about other people, either within the WSL or people from other brands that might be listening. I feel that way about Dave because I really value his opinions specifically not only because of his insights that he could provide um, from his position within the WSL, but also just knowing that he understands this medium, this podcast medium. So I like him. I think that he's measured. I think that he's thoughtful and I trust his values and judgments. I'm always eager to dig in with Dave and this episode is probably the most that he and I have ever gotten to dig in together. So the main objective with today's conversation was to get a primer for the 2018 championship tour, but I also hadn't ever had the chance to just riff about surfing with Dave. So we do that too. We recorded this episode at the World Surf League's headquarters in Santa Monica, California on February 22nd. We had scheduled one hour for this conversation, but we ended up going an hour and 45 minutes. So that's kind of an indicator that I think we both enjoyed the conversation. So without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this too. I am, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dave Prode. Um, well, to start, thank you for the Surf Ranch invite. Sure, yeah. I was honestly like, number one, excited and giddy beyond all get out like a child. But then was also really um, flattered to be considered part of surf media. So thank you. Yeah, it's a pretty loose term, I think, <laughs> in 2018. Zane, and, dude. Well, I mean, I think it's 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 probably the same across like different industries as well in terms of like traditional media, new media, and, yeah, and credentialed media versus uncredentialed media, or sort of sanctioned media versus unsanctioned media. And really, the opportunity behind um, those days was to kind of. Uh, look at different voices in the surfing world and um, try to give them some background on the facility. Um, and because it was late notice too, it was also putting it through the lens of people that could potentially make that trip on on short notice. Yeah. But I mean, that really came out of the conversation um, I had with Kelly back in September and we just finished the, the test event and he was pretty excited and we were both pretty excited. And, and I probably... Um, was and, and remained sort of the company cynic on a lot of things, mm. healthy cynicism, I think. And I was, I was, I was really impressed with the overwhelming reception that the the test event had. And I was talking to him about it, and he said something that really resonated. And he said, you know, um, like no one that's been up here, whether like to surf it or just to see it, has had a bad time, you know. And that was really kind of the the kickoff point. I said, you know. It, there's not going to be like a quid pro quo thing where it's like, well, now you have to be nice to us or now you have to do this or anything yeah. like that. But it's more that I remember having that cynicism and going up there and just seeing it before the wave even ran and being like, holy crap, like, 
I can't believe this exists. Like you're automatically floored by the scale of the project and then the wave is, you know, legitimately fun. So yeah, the idea behind the invite was um, to get a bunch of people up there with, with no real agenda, but to surf it and experience it and use that as kind of background in their own reporting because it is such a, a new thing that it, until you're there and you see it and hopefully experience it, like you really can't get a sense for what it means. What was your impression on the surf media's recap of the day? Yeah, I think I read most of it, but it wasn't really surprising just because the wave is like legitimately world class. And that's something that, you know, the CT surfers say, and and they're probably the harshest critics of it. So I think everyone had a really good time, (laughs) as as expected. Um, And one of the nice things that came out of it, too, uh, with two days, uh, separate days, was just the feeling that like the media or the surf voices or however you want to characterize them don't get to meet without like an agenda you know yeah ever right and that's probably at a loss for everyone including surfing because there's so many great minds in that space um that you know if they're there with no agenda and have some space to think and talk and have conversations i think a lot of really cool things could come out of it Mm. um and that was one of the things that our, our ceo sophie goldschmidt noted too she said we should whether it's here or somewhere else try to host these um gatherings really for media just to to interact and, and work on partnerships. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it, of that um, aspect of it. And while I was flattered to be considered part of that group, once I was there, I realized I knew all those guys and sure. I've spent time with all those guys already, you know? And, um, but it's, but it also was great to go on a surf trip with them. If that can be considered a surf trip, you know, like, yeah. because you're right. If we ever all at a place together, there is an agenda and there's a workload involved. Right. This was like, no, there's no pro surfers to try to hang on every word of this right. is really for us to hang out and have a good time. Yeah. And I think so, like, that's kind of, you know, I would, you probably could overdo it, but at the same time, it's probably some of the best ideas come out of that environment, right? Where yeah. you're not occupied or preoccupied thinking of other things you're just there to kind of enjoy the experience and you know talk story with some colleagues professional colleagues hopefully i'm kind of surprised by the negativity that's come out of or that there's any negative opinions at all about the experience um and i wonder if it's just that these are writers and media and they have to take a stance they can't all just come out of it like maybe team managers. You know, a month or two prior, we were seeing a lot of team managers um, and people that work for brands or whatever going and spending time there. And they post an Instagram video of their wave and it's just glowing review of like, that was the most fun I've ever had in my life. Well, surf media can't really do that. They have to take a stance. So I wonder how much of it is just, yeah, having a critical opinion about it versus actually not enjoying the day or not you know being legitimately concerned about what this means for surfing right well i mean i, you know, I mentioned it before like the the uh, healthy cynicism that i have and I, I think i get like most Do of the you? arguments i mean you know from the purest argument to the quality control argument to the the business plan argument um and then just sort of the the surf addict slash jealousy component like whether it's in surf press or just sort of on comment boards or otherwise right. like i feel like i've personally gone through a lot of those myself as well and so i kind of i do get where it comes from i mean i you know I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head i do think that you know whether they wrote about it or not everyone had a pretty good time um i'm sure some of them yeah, as has been my experience, it is it is a pretty nerve-wracking thing when you get a finite amount of opportunity and you know 
you know it's a pretty rare opportunity um, and, and it doesn't work out. Like I've had those experiences as well and you're like, oh shoot, man, I, now I, I don't know when I'm gonna get my next fix there. Um, but no, I mean, I, I get the argument. I don't know if it's so much that they have to take a stance, but I think the perception of being objective for the readership's important as well. Um, and I mean, I think it's good too. I, the last, which we kind of put this sort of random embargo on when people could talk about it in four months. And the reason we did that is I said, I, I mean, we're not here to buy anyone off. I just want them to have that experience for their own background. And, you know, if we bring a bunch of press up one day and then the following day across the surfing world, there's all these positive reviews of the facility, then it, it you know, that's not what we want either. Sure. Well, let's get on uh, with the conversation to the 2018 season, sure. which is upon us. Um, I know you've listened to the podcast over the years. A lot of our conversation, the ongoing conversation about the WSL on this podcast is kind of under this assumption that the WSL's end goal is a popularity and viewership similar to mainstream sports like the NFL or the UFC. Certainly all of the recent executive level hires at the WSL seem to verify that assumption, as does this Facebook deal that just went down. I'm just curious, is that a fair assumption? Is that the WSL's goal to have this kind of public acceptance as a mainstream sport? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like success and financial profitability is, is certainly, those are goals, right? I think those are goals of any business. Um, but the scale of that success and how you would define it probably varies a little bit within the organization. Um, you know, I wouldn't speak for everyone, but becoming mainstream in the right way is kind of what I'd be interested in, you know, and I think it's probably something that a lot of niche sport or community or content over the past three years has wrestled with. Um, you know, I have some colleagues at work um, for sort of skateboarding organizations and they're talking about the inclusion into the Olympics and, and determining how they do that in the right way. And I think that the mainstreaming of surfing, which has probably been a goal for four decades at this point, um, the, the way I would view success is that if you do reach that level of profitability and acceptance, but you do so in a way that galvanizes the core community to the point where they're proud of it and also welcomes in kind of an uninitiated audience too. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think mainstream is probably like a loaded term, but um, yeah, I mean, that's probably one avenue to success. But I think mainstreaming void of, of that acceptance by the core surf community is not sustainable. So that's the question. That's That was kind of a perfect segue into my next question, which is um, if that isn't sustainable, is there a way to grow the WSL to uh, while simultaneously engaging both audiences, this kind of broader market audience of people who don't surf or ever even go into the ocean while still engaging the core surfer? Yeah, I think, I think that's actually, it's my personal opinion, but I think that's kind of the only way that it will work in a sustainable way. And um, you know, surfing is one of those things that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, at the, I mean, you can go all the way back to the um, IS, IPS, sorry, I'm drawing, IPS and then the ASP and the WSL. Um, you know, the goal was probably to create a, a pretty specific expression of what surfing is in the competitive arena. Um, and I think now that we've sort of established a base level for professionalism, certainly compared to the pre-acquisition era, um, the goal is to take the surfing writ large elements um, that probably core surf fans are, are very proud of and infuse them through what we have in terms of touch points. And 
you know, I'd say like an example, someone like Felipe Toledo, you know, let's put a number on it, probably 20% of who he is as a surfer happens inside of a singlet. The other 80% happens outside. Um, and then let's just 50-50 is probably who he is as a human being is 50% as a surfer and 50% other things. So I think embracing the non-competitive elements of surfing through our surfers, um, as well as just the non-surfing elements of, of who they are as human beings, that's kind of how you bring a lot more people in because it gives you permission to, well, I guess you have to earn your way there, but it gives you permission to talk about the uh, non-exclusively competitive parts of surfing. You said that the only way to proceed is to engage both audiences, and I actually fully agree with that. Um, But the question is, is it doable? Are there any other examples that have come before us, either in um, maybe not competitive surfing, but maybe a surf brand that's mm-hmm. done it successfully, or maybe another sports organization that we can look to who's made that transition? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I don't I don't think there are that many parallels because I think surfing's a pretty unique entity in and of itself. Even, I know. Even within the WSL. But I think if you look at things like, um, like Bruce Brown's original Endless Summer was a commercial success in the mainstream and something that probably every surfer is proud to say like, yeah, we, we love the Endless Summer. And I think that's because he took the time to be really thoughtful and deliberate with how he showcased surfing or his expression of surfing to the world. And that predated competition, but I don't necessarily think there needs to be a quarantine between WSL competition and sort of the uh, you know, broader components of surfing that exist because someone like John or someone like Tyler or someone like Kai Lenny probably represent surfing as an idea just in their everyday life better than a lot of people already. You know, I think the job of the WSL is to express that in a broadened aperture, if you could. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I, and I do think that if you get that right, you do have the opportunity to kind of synthesize both of those groups. Yeah. This kind of leads perfectly into the Facebook conversation. Just for listeners who aren't up to speed on the deal, it was the largest deal in WSL history, estimated at, to net $30 million over the next two years. Facebook entered into an agreement with the WSL, which makes them the exclusive digital home for WSL live events. So firstly, congratulations on that. That's a huge deal. Can you outline what or like how the viewing experience will change for uh, for us? Yeah, yeah. It, it's actually something that's still being developed. I okay. think Facebook were really eager to seize that opportunity when they did. But part of the conditions that the WSL put upon them were that before the full migration happens off of the WSL platform that it currently sits on, the viewing experience has to be as good, if not better, than okay. what it currently is. And um, I'm confident Facebook can sort of develop something there. But excuse me. Um, but I do think probably the first few events of the season will still be on the WSL platform. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. Because the Facebook isn't all isn't fully built out yet to support yeah, it. I think I, so. I should have researched this, um, but I did read it somewhere at some point, which was that. Facebook was introducing like a new platform for yeah. all of media, and this was just part of it, or not media, but all of sports. I think it was. Yeah, Facebook I, Sports I, Live. I, or something? It was Facebook Watch. Facebook um, is Watch the, is the new okay. product, and I don't. I wouldn't speak for them because I don't know exactly the business plan there. But I have watched a few things on it. I mean, the the Tom Brady documentary that Gautam Chopra did, Tom versus Time, was like six episodes. They okay. Did did it on there it's really interesting i mean i think it's they're they're branching out into more of a streaming content company as well um, that's the thing yeah so so i think this is really just another opportunity for them to build out this sort of foundation um with with the world's best surfing 
And yeah, as people, as I've seen people complain about it online, I was kind of thinking the people who are complaining are trying to fit this new idea into their experience with Facebook. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. It seems like Facebook's creating this new portal and we're yet to really experience what that is. Do you know, um, do you have to have a Facebook account to be able to watch the events, the WSL events? You know, I'm not confident 100%, but I'd imagine that's the case. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a huge infusion of cash and also exposure and promotion for the WSL. At the end of this two-year deal, what do you think will be different for the WSL? What will they do with all that cash? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be able to answer for the company broadly, but I think the, the revenue model is something that's growing in sophistication. So media partnerships are a huge component of that. Um, and while you do have to have an account for the, the Facebook platform, it still is keeping it free um, in a lot of ways. So that kind of a partnership is able to you know, fund the world's best surfing in a lot of ways, too, in line with a number of other revenue streams as well. So um, I don't necessarily know how I'd be able to sort of characterize what the viewing experience would be like in two years, but it certainly gives us a lot of runway to develop the sport broadly in a way that we want to. Um, what are some of those ways? Well, I mean, I think anything from venues to formats to investment in storytelling content. Um, I, I think the idea is that, you know, you, you have to be bringing revenue to be able to run the sport yeah. um, at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, I, I think something like that, reportedly the biggest deal we've ever done, um, gives us a lot of runway to do things that we want to do. You say investment in storytelling and content. What does that plan look like? What are the objectives there? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes a little bit back to wanting to dimensionalize these athletes a little more holistically and tell the story of surfing outside the hyper-specific performance avenue. Um, hopefully in a way that uh, core fans enjoy um, yeah. and it sort of enhances that experience for them, but also in a way that um, for uninitiated fans, they come in and realize the depth of, of not just the sport, but the culture of surfing as well. Obviously, we've criticized the WSL on this podcast a lot, and I think you know it's just always from a place of wanting the WSL to succeed and like, here's what we would love to see the WSL do. That's one thing that we've always talked about. Certainly, Scott Bass and I have talked about it, where it's like, we would just love to see like the, I don't know, all the various um, shows that spiral around the nfl that are little documentaries or 30 for 30 docu whatever nfl programs nfl radio stations all this stuff that props up all their athletes is the kind of quality of content that we want as viewers but we also recognize there aren't there aren't necessarily homes for all of those things that we would like to see mm -hmm. i'm just curious you have to prioritize the content that you guys are going to create obviously the live shows is the product um and then you can kind of fit some of those things within the live show format certainly in between waves and things like that but what else what does it actually look like that original content and the dimensionalizing of the athletes like what does it look like yeah i mean i think if you i i would say too that it probably doesn't necessarily need to exist exclusively or be produced exclusively from the wsl as well i think that's I don't where think it does a ton of surf media can come in and produce as well because they'll come with their own voice and sort of yeah. disposition on a lot of topics but i always use kind of the world building analogy and, and anyone from our company that listens to this podcast which is most of us is going to roll their eyes at this point because they've heard this from me 
way too often. But, you know, the idea, if you look at a case study like Marvel, um, is one of the most successful entertainment companies on the planet. And you look for parallels, right? They've got a movie that comes out once a year, multiple times a year. Our parallel at scale would be, you know, our live events. Um, the other pro, uh, the other uh, leg they have to, to rely on is celebrities. You know, you get sort of Academy Award-winning actors and actresses dressing up in funny costumes. Um, and we have our, our, our surfers and our athletes, again, at scale, and some celebrity influencers. But what uh, Marvel benefits from that the WSL and surfing broadly struggles to, to parallel is the idea of the world build, right? Where originally it came to fruition through you know, decades of comic print canon, um, culturally through things like Comic-Con and then just Marvel.com, right? So there's this massive universe that they've created where the live events and the celebrities get to map to. Um, and in the surfing world, outside of uh, Matt Warshaw's really almighty work, um, it doesn't exist, right? So I think in terms of content build-out, I want to be telling history stories. And when Adriana D'Souza wins the world title in 2015, it shouldn't happen in a vacuum, you know. That story should be referenced and have reference points in terms of content and, and deep links on a, on a digital platform where it's pinging off of all the Brazilians that came before him and the shapers he's worked with and his relationship with Jamie O'Brien and all the things that happen around outside the jersey that make that story so special and reverberate across decades of history that came before it and hopefully decades in future you know that mm-hmm. that's kind of the idea on the content build out but um we have a long way to go there like i said there i mean you have to prioritize this stuff and there's only so many hours in the day and yeah yeah it's a big project for sure and i, I mean that's there's so many stories in surfing just They're looking really at up. like our cast of athletes on the ct men's and women's and i don't even think we're in a position to get to all of them year after year i don't think so um either. But it doesn't mean they're not important. They're certainly important to having out there in the ether to dimensionalize what you're seeing in the live arena. Yeah. Let's move on, talk about the tour schedule for this year. First of all, what happened with Fiji and Lowers? I don't think we ever really got a full... We never saw a press release or anything that explained it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a little bit separate, but the same same deal behind it where... With uh, Fiji, we didn't receive the amount of funding we needed from the tourism board there um, and weren't able to make it work financially for the 2018 calendar. So um, that was a hard one, but I I think we're pretty hopeful we're going to head back there in the near future because that one's obviously a a fan and surfer and staff favorite. Um, So hopefully we head back there in the future. And similar with Trestles, um, you know, our sponsors were interested as they were in, in Fiji, but the level of investment we needed to make that one work um, budget-wise in 2018 wasn't an option. But having grown up down there and understanding the importance of the venue, you know, I think it's going to come back in some sort of capacity and hopefully an important one in the future. So there are funding issues. Mm-hmm. Um, are, is the tourism board responsible for funding other events around the world? Is that a standard practice? It's fairly common. It depends. I mean, each event's got a different revenue model behind it. Okay. Um, but, you know, something like the Fiji Tourism Board pour a ton of money into PGA sports and sort of other sports that come to the island, but but not a lot into surfing, unfortunately, yet, um, which is a bummer because surfing is probably one of their biggest attractions for the country. I mean, I remember it was, I think, this past year, Outer Known mm-hmm. signed on, and it was stated that they were signed on for like a three-year, pro- or a three-year deal. Mm-hmm. So I assumed... Yeah, I just assumed they were responsible for carrying the cost, I guess, which 
it's only it's partially. A, I it part, yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, there's different. There's different layers to it. Yeah. So. Um. What was the objective with including Surf Ranch on the tour schedule for this year? Yeah, I mean that was something that was. Um, yeah, we probably announced everything in and around the same time, but it wasn't so much a swap as much as Fiji and Trestles are coming off the calendar this year. You know, after working with the commissioner's office and our partners and the surfers. Um, and certainly following the the test event we ran in September, the surfers were adamant about adding that event uh, to the calendar if we can make the, the funding work. And I think it probably happened a lot faster than a lot of the uh, elements of the company thought it would. But just due to the feedback of the, the surfers, um, you know, they're really game to have a CT in the, in the facility. So um, it was nice that we were able to, to fill the gap there um, with an event there. I guess this is where the kind of um, crux comes in from a practical standpoint about alienating core while growing to the broader audience Mm -hmm. is that is the complaint of a lot of the core, which is, you know, surfing takes place in the ocean and there's unpredictability in the ocean and blah, blah, blah. And so by trying to um, create the common or the predictable playing field, you're now trying to engage some middle America audience, but it, we don't want that. That's not what we want. We want the unpredictability of Jeremy Flores getting the wave at with 16 seconds left in the final of Pipe Masters, you know? Yeah, I think t- to an extent, I totally understand that argument and probably you know, been on that side of the argument in the past too. From a quality control standpoint, for me, the litmus test is the surfers. If the surfers think the venue is worthy of having a CT, then I'm not getting in their way on that. Like okay. I, I get that. But in terms of what you're talking about too, the way I think about it and actually helps me sleep at night quite a lot is, is sort of the balance argument in the sense that, um, you know, uh, most of the venues on tour are, are pretty unique in the sense that they'll have qualities that favor a certain type of surfer and qualities that disadvantage a certain type of surfer. So the wave at Surf Ranch and certainly the dynamic of having, you know, pre-programmed waves um, is definitely going to favor some surfers, right? Um, surfers that are probably more technically proficient um, at figuring out, you know, where to um, execute on the wave, um, and disadvantaged surfers who maybe had an, have an advantage in the open ocean. Um, so I guess the argument is we wouldn't have five out of ten events at Chopu um, because that would create an imbalance. So I think within reason having these systems online to provide that opportunity provided the wave is considered world-class by the surfers i think it's good for balance okay do you think there's any benefits that can come out of having it in this kind of predictable i mean one thing that i've talked about on this show is um i think it offers the opportunity to help kind of make a more objective judging criteria Mm -hmm. You could literally give two surfers the same wave and then time the exact amount of seconds they were in the barrel, mm. measure in theory how high an aerial is or sure. whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the there's a lot of implications outside of the, the core surfer argument, which I probably spend most of my time thinking about yeah. trying to come to terms with. And um, But yeah, I mean, from a business standpoint, from a broadcast standpoint, from a technology standpoint in terms of how we're filming and what we're showing and the officiating side of things and measuring performance and speed and water displacement, it's the facility offers like there's no parallel 
um, in terms of what you're able to execute there or potentially execute. So all of that's being reviewed right now and I'm sure it will come in on the 2018 schedule is, is something pretty unique compared to the other events in terms of what we're able to do there. And it feels like if you're able to figure it out there, you could actually translate it to practice in the ocean too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's ultimately the goal. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can't imagine a future where, you know, the WSL is crowning a world champion that's not successful in the ocean. You know, I think right. if anything, it's it's an amazing replication and the best one we've ever seen of the power of the ocean and, and sort of as a practice facility um, and even as an event facility. But I, I think the organization still understands that the power of ocean venues and, and the power of um, surfing this. Is there a wave pool being built in Tokyo? Uh, it's on the cards. I don't think it's being built yet, but okay. certainly. For the Olympics. Um, Hawaii. The Pipe Masters will not take place in 2019. It was explained that it was a permitting issue um, with the WSL not meeting a deadline for submission. However, it's also been pretty openly discussed that while the permitting issue seems to be true, there's also a lot of politics that take place that make it very difficult to conduct business on the North Shore. The politics seem to be taking place both in City Hall and in the local community on the North Shore. Why won't we have a Pipe Masters event in 2019? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the easiest region to work with, but um, yeah, as was reported, the WSL requested a date swap for its permits to accommodate the broader changes that are rolling out for the 2019 calendar. Um, and that wasn't accommodated, so we're not going to have a permit for pipe in 2019. Um, and it's a shame. Like, I think everyone here understands the value of pipeline. And I think the process which the mayors come out and sort of acknowledge as being fairly flawed um, is changing. They're tearing up the permitting rules and going to sort of rewrite them from scratch. From what I understand, the Hui didn't receive a permit for their backdoor shootout in 2019 either. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's opportunity for improvement there um and hopefully we end up in a place where pipes back on the schedule in 2020 if they weren't going to approve the swap why not just keep it in the main december slot uh because the changes we're implementing to the sport wouldn't allow for that what are those changes that's part of the bummer that this has had to play out a little bit in public because we haven't fully announced those yet but i can't can't comment on them yet these are uh, scheduling changes for 2019? Yep, in part. Okay. Was part of the idea with shifting the Pipe Masters away from the end of the tour to the beginning of the tour, was that an attempt to divest or to lessen the importance of Hawaii in on the schedule? No, not at all. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's unfortunate we kind of have to have this debate, you know, with only a piece of the puzzle being revealed. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think once it is revealed the the new plan considerably ramps up Hawaii's place in the surfing zeitgeist. Oh, does it? Um, and actually does a lot to benefit Hawaii surfers as well. And, and that's something that's super important to the WSL. It, the WSL actually funds a number of the Pro Junior and QS events there right now, fully funds, mm-hmm. um, in a way that's unique you know, across the world. Um, and that's, that's because we recognize the importance there and want to make sure it can happen. But... Yeah, I think the, the permitting process has been frustrating well beyond sort of this year. And in a lot of cases, we don't, and events don't receive their permits till a couple months in advance of the actual dates. So in terms of running a business, it's just not sustainable if you're trying to plan out 
major things for surfers and fans and partners. Um, you know, you kind of have to have a longer lead time than that. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The WSL, it certainly seems like they're held to um, demands on the North Shore that they aren't held to around the world. Are the North Shore's demands on the WSL reasonable, both from a standpoint of ethics and simply as a sustainable business decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that kind of we just outlined from a from a permitting standpoint, it's just not sustainable. Um, if you want to grow a business and be able to properly service fans and surfers and partners with with longer lead times in a couple of months, but you know, I think you know the idea is that we're going to be lo- working with the city of Honolulu and the parks and rec officials on building a process that accommodates sort of a longer lead time there, and hopefully can secure permits for multiple years at a time, so we can. Yeah, have the best possible outcome for like you know, our surfers and the fans and our partners and certainly the local community. Um, we've, like I mentioned, kind of openly criticized the WSL on this show. And I was just curious how much of that criticism provides a roadmap, not, not us specifically on the podcast, but the internet at large. How much of the WSL's roadmap is based on suggestion or criticism from the surfing public yeah i mean i I think stakeholder feedback is like hugely important in terms of um, sense checking the vision for the company but i mean at the end of the day the vision has to be the vision you have got to be confident that that's the three and five and ten year plan for the organization but you know i think on most decisions if not all there's a pre-canvas there's a pre-communication of of all stakeholders whether they're surfers or partners or fans or press on situations and we use that to feed back into how we we guide the the execution of the vision moving forward yeah i i admire it i admire the ability to change and like the negotiating that the wsl has done even within the course of a year i feel like the public will kind of give an outcry about something maybe it's um I don't know, questionable judging criteria and like we want to hear from Richie Porta and then three events later, Richie Porta is coming in the booth to discuss, you know, a judging question. So I I really always appreciate those changes being made. Um, And I, yeah, and I don't know, 
I've always kind of been curious about how much of it is based on public feedback or simply just being able to moderate things as you move forward. You know? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think in the last couple of years, like our, our social media team's grown like a lot in sophistication in terms of canvassing what kind of feedback and how, excuse me, constructive criticism can then be you know, evangelized across the company to make those changes. Because, you know, just like surfing, like the organization's a living, breathing, evolving kind of entity as well. So it has to evolve with the times. But at the same time, you, I was listening to Jamie Foxx talking on something, on somewhere about something, and he was like, I cannot read comments anymore. Like, I cannot take any feedback at all because I would just never tell a joke again. Sure. You know, like the critics just, you can't bow to everyone. So you got to just kind of put the blinders on and move forward and do what you know is the right thing to do. So it seems like a delicate balance, whether you're an individual or an organization, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's something that's like totally new to the world in the last, is, like, yeah. you know, decade, right? And I mean, you see it, certain surfers are able to do it certain surfers aren't like certain surfers are on social media all day going back and forth with fans and critics and all sorts of things and um i get it man like i i i back before the acquisition kind of started the twitter handle and i think the facebook i can't remember the facebook page and was living and breathing it every day and it was kind of the first time you were getting like real direct feedback from the fans and it's yeah you gotta sense check yourself a bunch and be like okay that's that's actually super valuable and important this over here i, I kind of just have to move on with and and, and go from it's um, it's a weird time to be a human being oh, it really is it feels so unhealthy to like be constantly monitoring all of this stuff and to be, I mean, you know, the device is meant to be um, to simplify your life and organize things and make more efficient. And it ends up just creating tons of anxiety and confusion. It, I mean, it's just, I think it's probably the same with like the human species and any real powerful form of technological advancement. Yeah. Like at first we don't really use it in the most effective way. And, and yeah. I'm probably giving us too much credit. We might, some of it we might never use in the most effective way. But right. I think for a lot of it too, like... Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a real forfeiture of the physical identity for a lot of people for a digital one, you know, and it's something that, um, funny enough, like I studied kind of this phenomenon when I was at school, just in terms of media literature, um, and it's been happening for decades, but just as the technologies grow more sophisticated, people are kind of forfeiting, you know, time in the physical world yeah. for the digital world and their emotions and their views and 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 you know for some sort of their physical avatars have have become digitized so you know probably probably too far afield but it's a weird time i agree with you it very much is we're back with spy and alex gray alex was telling us about that magic 5-8 channel bottom it was only yeah it was a thruster um and he didn't you know with how deep the channels are and Merrick's signature channels are curved. They just stick to the wave. And that's why we were getting away with such short length of a board. With a little bit extra foam under your chest for the paddle, it was like having, you know, that perfect play of being able to step on the board and go, go fast, but without that feeling of it sliding out or, or being too loose. It was, it was just this blend of perfection. Hmm. And when that board broke, my heart sunk. Uh, I gave it back to the shaper, Mike, and he has it in a shaping bay, but uh, I wish those things would last forever. <laughs> Alex's surf adventures are partially made possible with the support of Spy. Spy is the first sunglass company to create color and contrast enhancing lens technology that also has therapeutic benefits. 
Happy lenses not only enhance color, contrast, and clarity, making colors more vivid and surroundings more defined, it actually helps to foster an uplift in mood and alertness. I'll share more at the end of this episode when Alex comes back to tell us about the fateful wave that snapped his cherished 5.8. Until then, check out spyoptic.com, use promo code podcast to get that free t-shirt or hat, and the limited edition Surf Splendor sunglass bag. Spyoptic.com. See happy. Where do you think the biggest uh, limitations and challenges have been for the WSL? Yeah, and again, I mean, I'm not speaking for the whole organization, but from my perspective, I think there's like an abundance of interests and projects and avenues that we can go down. Um, and I think that just focusing the organization on on continuing to deliver or delivering further quality in what we do put out there um, is is the biggest challenge, right? There's just so many opportunities. And I mean, if you look at what has happened since the acquisition, like um, in late 2012, like, you know, uh, wave codes come online, the Olympics have become a thing. Um, you know, the big wave awards and the big wave tour have come in house. And you also have just the the convergence of all these previously disparate mechanisms of the sport. Um, so there's just so much now that we have to get our arms around, and there's so many things that we can pursue. But I think that focusing on you know core values and core projects and doing them with distinction is is that's our biggest challenge. Okay. Um, where do you feel that surf media is letting the WSL down? <laughs> what can surf media do to bolster competitive pro surfing? Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think it is letting us down. I mean, occasionally I'll read something that's fairly agenda-driven, but that's pretty rare. I mean, I think that you know, surf media doesn't owe the WSL anything. I think it should do its job, and we've never, or at least I've never, had an issue with, with negative press, you know, occasionally bad journalism. Um, but I think that, you know, similar to what we are talking about with the information age kind of coming online. One thing I noticed just as a fan, you know, the course of, you know, 12 years being here, um, is that I feel like the surf media got more and more self-referential as time went on. And that's probably a function of, of Twitter and, and, and sort of niche language and a changing media landscape. Whereas when I grew up, you know, surfing for me was as a kid, you know, and surf media was like, it was a, a stepping stone to learning about, you know, culture and art and music and fashion and different parts of the world where it was very like outward facing and, and it existed as part of this larger ecosystem. Whereas now I feel like we can just get so self-referential on things. And um, I, I'd like to see surf media kind of expand out and try to try to cover more transcendent storytelling. It's hard. I mean, it, it's I mean, we struggle with it here at the WSL where it's there is a huge distinction between covering breaking news and then telling story, you know, short form and, and long form uh, content. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think that's probably fed a fixation on sort of business news for the surfing yeah. world, which, you know, I can say I get sick of reading because I'm reading about it, our own organization. But, you know, I think that everyone kind of focuses on that, even just trade news, you know, like what's happening at Quicksilver, what's happening at Billabong, what's happening with this contract. It's interesting, but I also think it, it doesn't quite... You know, it's only one fraction of what's happening in surfing. And I think a lot of what we talked about, the stories that you could tell from the surfers' perspectives or the shapers' perspectives, they're out there. And I just think the medium probably hasn't done the best job with it, which is why something like 
podcasts are interesting, right? Because it's a long form conversation and you can get more out of that than in a, you know, 60 second Instagram hit or something like that. So, Um, and that was actually going to be my next question, which was give me podcast feedback. I know you (laughs) listen to podcasts, you've produced your own podcast and, uh, or a couple, I guess. And we've always been critical of the WSL on this podcast, so this is your opportunity to provide critical feedback for me. What do you want to see? <laughs> I, I mean, I really enjoy Sir Splendor. I think like the guest format that you've developed is really good just for that same reason where it's like, okay, cool, we can sit down for an hour or two hours and really have a conversation and, and try to get some information out there in a way that that isn't possible like in other mediums right now. And I think that you kind of talked about it before where you said it was nice to be considered surf media, but I really do. Um, but I think that as podcasts like Surf Splendor gain legitimacy, maybe they don't even need to anymore, that those guests will become, you know, your Kelly Slaters and these guests will become your Sean Thompson's and, you know, surfers and sort of icons and scions within surfing with really interesting stories to tell. will look at that as a, as a really appealing outlet for it. But yeah. I don't have any. What would you change if you could? I just want more show format. Like I see a lot of, I listen to a lot of other shows, whether it's, um, right now I'm listening to the show called Masters of Scale by the guy who, Reed Hoffman, who started LinkedIn. Yep. And Radio Lab and This American Life. And like, they're different styles and different formats that I'm like, oh, we could do, tell surf stories in this format. I would love to do that. But, Again, only have so many hours in the day. I'm a one-man show. uh, And how do I prioritize these things? It just takes time to do is all it is. Yeah, and I I mean, I I wouldn't forecast it, but it wouldn't shock me if the media landscape in the surfing world, which is pretty niche, shifts, right? Where, you know, at one point the cover of of, um, Surfing Magazine was like a major marketing hit or a major hit for a surfer. And now it doesn't exist. Right. You know, um, and then the digital landscape opened up. And now this is just another medium that, I mean, who knows? Like maybe the podcast will become big business and you'll be the first first in best dressed in a lot of ways. Yeah, we'll see. Um, what media do you follow? I guess... For I, surf, I, surf media or just... Yeah, surf media yeah. specifically. And I, I, I'm asking kind of... Let me ask you two questions. Sure. Number one... Does the WSL have somebody on staff that tracks all of surf media? Or do you all just not, kind of do not, it collectively? Not explicitly, but we do have a communications department that okay. track you know, all coverage inclusive of surf media. Um, I'd say most of the folks here, follow, like, like myself, follow all if you can. Um, I think that I do as well. Yeah. And then I get reminded, like a listener will send me an article to, or something, and I'm just like, oh, man, I... I didn't realize my focus is actually pretty narrow. There's sure. a ton of other websites. and Oh, that. for sure. For sure. I mean, <laughs> nowhere was that more apparent than um, I think when the embargo lifted and, and um, you know, very humbly uh, was, was given a lot of credit by certain people on Instagram for uh, going to the surf ranch. And then I'm not super active on social media myself, but um, got a lot of new followers that day and learned about a lot of other surf media that would love to have an opportunity to... <laughs> Sort of unfairly positioned as a gatekeeper, but I think a lot of the thank yous were like at WSL, at Waveco, at Kelly, and then at Dave Prodan. And I'm like, right. that's, yeah, that's going to bother certain people. Yeah, funny. Um, so then what do you personally follow? What surf media do you every single day make sure to check? 
Yeah, I mean, mo- most, if not all. I mean, and, and similar to you, I'm probably being tuned into new ones all the time. But man, it's just so much. Like, I, I, it's funny because you, you'd imagine the landscape's constricted so much, so the new content's not coming up all the time. But, you know, it's part of this job, and it's been that way for me forever, is, you know, you're on, it's an international organization, and it's an international sport, so it's like a 24-hour, like, workday in terms of... It really is. Especially with social media, you know, stories are popping off at all hours. Um, so I, I do my best to follow that. I mean, the, the ones I enjoy are the ones that, like this, provide a little more depth to the story than, you know, I, I enjoy a highlight clip or a video clip as much as the next person, but, you know, something that I learn, you know, something out of it. You know, our, our colleague Matt Warshaw is a huge, um, you know, one for me. I, I, I'm on there every day. On Encyclopedia? Yeah, Encyclopedia. I mean, I, I love Above the Roar just because it's like this compendium of interviews and then History of Surfing. I'm, and I, I'll get lost down the rabbit hole all for hours if I sometimes, so... The thing that I struggle with, maybe you don't, is um, there's too much surfing in my life. You know, it's like <laughs> if you want to actually keep up with all that stuff, it's 28 hours a day of stuff. And I just, to be honest, want to shut off surfing at a certain point. For sure. And I mean, it, it's it's something that I've, I've struggled with just as a human being, right? Yeah. When you work, and probably you do too to an extent, like... When you work in surfing and it started out as a personal passion that becomes a profession, the lines between personal and professional get blurred a lot. And, you know, if something's going bad in the professional space, it can impact your professional life too, where you kind of have to dissect them a little bit and say, no, 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 like, you know, I, I, I'm, st- I'm still a surfer and I enjoy it on my own <laughs> like merits, um, even though I'm, I'm very fortunate to get to work in surfing as well too. But you're right. I mean, the if repeat, I think everyone has a lot of different interests, and it's similar to what I talked about before, where it's like it's not just surfing, and I want to learn only about surfing. It, for me, it's been an onboarding ramp to learning about a lot of things, whether it's politics or you know um, business development, business sure. development, ecological issues, um, culture. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, and that's kind of, I'd say the bulk of what I read every day is not surf related, but as part of the job, I do try to canvas everything I can. You said that, um, you still first and foremost are a surfer and enjoy surfing. Do you like, how much do you enjoy surfing still? Well, well, it's been a struggle recently. There hasn't been, I have pretty low standards when it comes to like how bad the waves can be for me to go surfing. Um, and it's been a struggle for me recently in California. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love it. And I probably, like, uh, it's one of those things where the more you learn, the less you know, right? Like, the more I learn about it, just personally, the more I realize, the less I know about it, which is great, right? Because it's this constantly evolving thing. And certainly, things I didn't have any time for when I was younger... Um, within the bounds of surfing, I uh, I have like tremendous respect for now. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, what about you? I mean, it's- uh, yeah, I. It's something that I struggle with. It's like, I think, in my head, there's room for surfing. Like I said, I don't want to spend 24 hours in a, a day thinking about surfing. Yeah. So in a given day, I have a certain number of hours dedicated. And if I spend some of those hours working on surfing and then doing a podcast about surfing and then prepping for a podcast about surfing and then editing a previous podcast about surfing, I don't really want to go surfing at the end of that day. Right. And, and if I know I'm going to be doing it all day tomorrow, 
I don't want to wake up an extra two hours early to then go surfing. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost think that the the act of surfing should, if you work in surfing, the and I know it's not always possible, the act of surfing should always take priority over the business of surfing. And it's something that I don't do in my own life. I need to do more often because I think that you work in the business of surfing and you're not surfing and you are a surfer, um, it, it's a struggle, right? I guess for me, though, I, I have the benefit of being, a, you know, I've got four-year-old twins, so they uh, they shake me out of, like, the, the surfing echo chamber every time, so. Well, when I explain the scenario I just did, that is um, when I'm failing, you know? Like, that is not the way it should be. That's the way it ends oh, up course, happening. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. The act of surfing should always take priority, and then I I reset occasionally and realize, hmm. oh, these things aren't the same thing, and I can actually do my work better and the podcast better if I'm getting in the water in the morning. Yeah, you know? but I mean, sometimes you just can't. Like, no, it's just not. Yeah, and it's exactly. a funny thing. Like, I was talking to a buddy of mine about this recently, and and you know, I start I I started out working at Rip Curl Surf Center in San Clemente when I was seventeen, and you know, I. I don't consider myself like a massive success or anything, but I often think like if my 17 year old self met myself today, they'd be like, what are you doing? Like you should be surfing every day. You should be taking days. If there's no waves, like you should be going to Haloma. Like what's wrong? You know this. And they're like, it's it's one of those things where you look in the mirror and you're like, you're right. I do know this. Why am I not doing it? But you know, yeah, I, um, I wonder if we ever ran into each other at the rib curl surf center back in the day. Might've bought a a VHS from you or something. I was good at selling VHSs for sure. So, and wetsuits. Those are my two things. Check this story out. This was actually probably before you, when you were there. I was. I must have been 15 or something. Okay. Like I walked in and I wanted to buy, I had like 35 bucks and I wanted to buy a VHS, yeah. surf video. And I walk into the counter, you know, and they're all just under glass. And I'm looking at them all. And there was one with Chris Ward on the cover standing in a barrel at back door with his hand, hands behind his uh, back. Yeah. And it looked like a Wheaties box. Yeah. And it was called Annihilation. Sure. And I was um, 15 years old, but I felt pretty confident that I knew what that word was. And there was like a pretty hot chick working there. She was like 20 and I was 15. So I was like, I like muster the courage to like make a stab at the word. I'm like, hey, can I get, um, I want to, I'll get Annihilation. And she looks and she goes, you mean Annihilation? Oh, no. And I just felt so sheepish and felt so dumb. And I was like, oh. Yeah, that one. And then I bought it and left thinking that's how you now pronounce the word. <laughs> the next girl you saw, you're like, hey, yeah. do you want to check out Anhiliation? Exactly. <laughs> and then like some time went by and I got older and smarter and I was like, that girl was such a dumbass. Why did that ruin me? But because she was pretty, I thought she knew everything, you know? Uh, that's what you think at 15. The, the, like, it's, like, the video thing, I've got a whole bag of them upstairs right now that I pretty much have like schlepped from my parents' house through college and to my house and they've been in a bag and like... That, that to me, um, like, we're, they were so foundational to my, like, understanding of surfing. Oh, like, yeah. Especially, uh, you know, we had, like, some weird six degrees of separation Kevin Bacon thing happening with Lost, like, through, like, one of our friends, his sister, right. his girlfriends. And, um, and so we got all these videos. We just save up for months and get the video. And, uh, and that was, like, in, probably in good ways and bad ways, informed our view of, like, what surfing was. And... Um, like some of that stuff still blows my mind. Like if we, if you get the old DVDs and videos, it's like, it just strikes me as so insane that when they were 15 and 16, like people like Corey and Chris and Andy were basically like sent around the world with no internet and like, like 
get figure it out get a rental car go surf the box punch sharks out like it's just that 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 can't even be replicated today even if you tried you know and it was just a different totally different generation of people i also think about we you and i had those things as influencers and there was a lot fewer things to influence us yeah so i think that so much of us and even the guy the generations before us had even fewer influencers so there was really kind of a homogenized yeah. surfer that was created out of those things and now there's just so much information and so much content and you can become just some pro hipster surfer that other pro surfers have never even heard of before you know yeah and it's it's i think that the the access to that kind of content has sort of leveled the playing field internationally in a lot of ways. Like, if you think about it, even before video, like, if you're a kid in Brazil, you basically can look at the local heroes as your sort of, like, benchmark or, like, stylistically how you would want to surf or or the boards that they shape. Same with the shapers. You know, the shapers yeah. were like, well, this is, I figured it out. I learned from this guy up the street. And then, you know, the tour would come to town. You'd see, wow, that's how Tom Curran surfs or that's how Aki surfs or whatever. Like, I'm going to incorporate that. But you had to watch it live, you know. And then videos came, and that was a little bit better. But then when the information age hit, it's like, okay, it's leveled everything out. Like, every kid that wants to develop into a world-class surfer basically has all the tools, right? They can get access to the best, you know, fitness regime, health and diet, um, to the information anyway. It doesn't mean they can afford it. Um, you know, access to vision of the best techniques. Um, all the shapers around the world have access to best practices or close to it, right? Um, and so really, like, the point of difference then becomes what's your motivation, right? And I, I really think that that played a huge role in the recent rise of Brazil. You know, when everything got leveled out between kids from California and Hawaii and South Africa and Europe and Asia um, and Australia... Everyone has access to the same boards and the same training and the same surfing influences if they wanted to via the internet. So the point of difference becomes like how hungry are you? Yep. You know? And I think because of all those things, talent level rises. Like kind of the bottom level of talent is now higher than it's ever been. And you're right. Once everybody has a similar amount of talent, drive and grit is what takes you to the next thing totally like ta talent and I, I talked about this the other day and I, I say i don't post that much but i've been on a, a tear relative for me um i posted a video lucas silvera yeah um and i was saying like you know the the talent level on tour has never been higher yeah. for sure comprehensively anyone can beat anyone else but equally true is the development rate of surfers not on tour and like kind of answering the question of like well who's the best surfer not on tour it's like it used to be like a handful of answers would basically be universally accepted. Now it's like there are dozens, if not hundreds, of candidates that you forget about, and then they release an edit, and you go, "Holy crap!" Like that, like that would have broken the surfing world if that was released ten yeah. years ago. And and it, it really is. It's amazing, like how many talented surfers there are out there. You know what's interesting? As true as that is, if you go back and watch one of the lost videos from our childhood or a yeah. Taylor Steele video. Those clips would still make the cut today. Sure. You know, yeah. so it's it's kind of bizarre that both yeah. those things can be true. Yeah, you're right, for sure. I mean, some of the stuff that like like Andy or Sean Briley did in those videos and it's it's so relevant, yeah. you know, and like yeah. Or like a Shane Dorian section in Momentum or something. You're like, "Well, this is, that would still make the cut." 
Yeah. Although Shane's still surfing that good too, which I is kind of crazy. I saw something the other day. Of, I think they're doing like a Bloodlines thing on the North Shore, and I was like, geez, like, that's so he's good. surfing so well. He's more fit now than he's ever been before. Yeah, right? I know. I got I to gotta get on the program. Me too. <laughs> but it's how, it gives you hope. You're like, well, Kelly did it. Yeah. I know. I actually, I just set like a 15-year plan for myself. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. It was like, by the time I'm 50, I think I could actually be in better shape and surfing better than I am right now. But that's like, and it's all within scale. Like, I mean... It, I always say, like, you know, working here, there's really no better place than to be totally comfortable by being, like, the worst surfer at an event. It's like, these are world's best surfers. Like, I don't need to be telling Mick, like, hey, I wouldn't use the 511, maybe the 510. You know, right, like, right, right, right. Come on. But, but just back to, like, improvement. Like, I'm not as fit as I was when I was younger, but I surf way better. And it's, like, the, the knowledge of just acquiring technique and reading the ocean everything. It's, like, man, like... That, that was really what was missing. So if I can scale, claw my way back to some sort of non-embarrassing level of fitness, hopefully I can keep improving. Do you surf better now than you did when you were younger? Yeah, Is that I, true? Yeah, for sure. Really? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. But, uh, but I didn't other... surf that well, though, so that's okay. the difference. Like, I, I, I still don't, I don't let's really be honest, either. but like it's much better. Like Those other things you were saying are also true for me, though. Like I feel like I could paddle out at like eight-foot Puerto and not get necessarily like super wrecked and I could yeah. cherry pick and find the good ones. And, but I wouldn't surf them as well as I would when I was a kid. But when I was a kid, I definitely would have got smashed a lot too. Yeah. So it's kind of like my ocean prowess is better. Uh, and I expend less energy and avoid wipe out and all that. But once I'm up and riding, it's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking about Instagram and um, that, uh, Lucas Silvera video that you posted. I, I really enjoy your Instagram. You don't post enough, but when you do, they're well-told stories that highlight a uh, rivalry, a venue, or a moment in surfing surfing's history. You clearly have a penchant for storytelling and a desire to do it. What storylines should we be looking for in this 2018 season? Yeah, thanks. I, I You're right. I don't post much but hopefully when i do it's you know relatively informative and not just me whinging about something um but it's probably 50 50 um the storyline the big broad one for me this year is i really think that this is like it's a totally new era for surfing and, and we're seeing and perhaps accepting you know the first real torch bearers um of the world's best surfing like arguably in decades um, if you think of how long Kelly has been considered yeah. the best surfer on the world and even the generations behind him, you know, your mix and your Taj's and your Joel's um, are phasing out. Um, and I think surfers are, are slow to change, you know, their opinion on that. You know, it's like Gabrielle won the title like four years ago at this point in 2014. Um, but only recently are we accepting, well, maybe, you know, he's in the top five, like universally speaking, not obviously in Brazil. I'm sure he's been considered top one forever. Um, but John's won two titles back to back and I think the surfing world is shifting its focus in terms of recognizing that dynasty and saying like okay well it's a new era so I really think that the performers in 2018 are going to cement themselves as the torchbearers moving forward I think that's I think that's the biggest story across everything you know um, and it could be someone new that wins the title this year it could be one of the new it could be anyone really Mm -hmm. um, but I think it really, I think this is kind of going to set the tone for the next five years at least. Who are you most excited to watch among the rookie class? Oh, um, well, Wade Carmichael is someone I've been 
excited about for a few years because he's gotten really close a few years and I just think he has a different approach which is really cool um this super low center of gravity that I, I do not have but I'm super envious of mm-hmm. and he just throws so much water but I mean like some of the surfers that are qualifying that maybe aren't as heralded as much like um you Michael Rodriguez has got just this huge like aerial game on him like just like a ton of amplitude and um you know people like Iago Dora are really interesting and um so yeah I mean of the rookies it's it's hard to say like I'd, I'd love to see like the foundational power game get recognized with Carmichael and I'd love him to come out because I, I I think the thing about the rookies that I think about every year is like okay who's bringing something to the table that is like better than what we currently have yeah and a lot of rookies they have a lot of the tools and they're really, really exciting, but it's not often that you have someone that's like, when this person's on their game, they're better than the best, you know? Like, they have to develop those tools once they're on tour and at that level. Right. But someone like Wade, in terms of, in the right conditions in like a power-based game, it's like, wow, he's he could really mess people up. But who, what about you? Who My you money's think? on Wade. Yeah. And this is a thought I don't think I've fully kind of crystallized on air yet, but I've talked to people about it off-air, is... There comes times in um, in things, in sports, in movies, in politics, whatever, where like a cultural kind of movement happens. And I think that we're at a time where um, Wade Carmichael, sponsorless, workhorse, unkempt, like is going to thrive. Like up until now, there's always been somebody who's in the limelight who has this multi-million dollar contract and like all of the benefit of a coaching staff and video review and all this stuff helps them get to where they're at. And I feel like at this moment, there's something that will surpass that. And it might be the Brazilian grit conversation that we've been having, and maybe that was a precursor to this. The Brazilian storm was a precursor, where it's kind of like, we need a big shakeup. And the shakeup is gonna come from the common man. Mm -hmm. It's gonna come from the everyman, you know? And um, I think it'll be an interesting, I think, uh, Griffin Colapinto is the counterpoint of that. Griffin Colapinto has been groomed. Sure. He's the California kid. He's Chloe Andino 2.0. And technically, perfect. So sound. You know, like uh, there's recent clips from you Snake Tales. Yeah. 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 That are unreal. I'm, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, the kid is a freak talent, yeah. you know? Yeah. But we've seen freak talents join the tour and then not thrive Mm -hmm. so what is it what helps you thrive on tour if it's not necessarily talent and competitive savvy because those people all have the competitive savvy then what allows you to do well at the ct level and that's the one element that is yet to be defined and i'm wondering if this year it will be grit it will be a dogged determination and that's something that i've seen from wade carmichael yeah i mean i think that's a that's that's an interesting take i I don't disagree i think It'll be interesting to see what he brings because there's been a lot of, not a lot, but there's been cases of every man coming in of where course. you're thinking the same thing. But at the end of the day, it's it's a little bit like a John Henry versus the machine situation of like they're just so overwhelmed by the 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 um, the systems that some of these yeah. hyper talented and hyper professional surfers have in place. But I think Wade's at a good age too, where he's gotten close a bunch and he's. He's he's really. I mean, it's funny. Like I saw a clip of him from maybe five or six years ago, um, and it was almost all aerials. 
you know, mm. like, so he, he's refined his surfing around what his strengths are. So I hope he has the confidence to go forward with them in, in the live arena, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, a parallel I'd bring up is maybe someone like B. Durbage, who was like a celebrated um, sort of junior superstar in the Australian market. Um, and by the time he got on tour, I think he was maybe still riding for Billabong the first yeah. year, but wasn't sort of like the, the supernova guy. But he, I think in his rookie year, like beat Kelly twice, like uh, Kelly, like Pete Kelly, you know? And I think that was because he had all the tools, but he was also psychologically very confident and like didn't get rattled. Right. And I think it's like guys like Wade need to take a lesson out of that, where it's like, if you earned your way here and you believe in your surfing, like don't, don't get shaken by the limelight, man. Just go out and do your job. And there's also aspects of his surfing that nobody else can do. That's right. Yeah. That, so, and that's and that's when you have that in your arsenal like you need to figure out when to use that and how much to use that and and not to overuse that, right? Because right. the other end of the spectrum would be someone um who had like the air reverse on lock, you yeah. know, 5 or 6 years ago in competition where the first time you see it you're like, "Wow, that's an 8," you know, cuz no one's doing it. Mm-hmm. But then the thousandth time you see it you're like it's just not scoring, right? Yep. So it's it's I think you know, the, the, what I will give the judges like a ton of credit for over the last few years is that their interpretation of the criteria has really championed like a quantum leap in live arena performance, right? Whether you're talking about Felipe Toledo or John John Florence or whatever, like a lot of their surfing they're doing in the live arena is really next level. And that wasn't the case when I started. You know, there was a fairly conservative approach to surfing in heats. We're back with a final word from Spy and Alex Gray. Speaking of final words, Alex was just telling us about the final wave he ever surfed on that magic 5.8 channel bottom from Channel Islands. I ended up surfing a wave in Australia called Hours, and it was the third kind of slab I'd taken it to. Uh, and it had a little buckle in it at that point, but it, it was lasting. And, and that slab at Hours took it out on the first wave that I didn't make. But uh, man, that board served me so well. I almost can't get another purple board because it's just, I have to let that one be its own thing. Alex wears the cliffside frame with Happy Lens from Spy. Not only does the Happy Lens help to foster a positive uplift in mood and alertness, but they also boost clarity and enhance color and contrast. Really cool technology from an awesome company based in San Diego, California. They've partnered with me to make this unique Surf Splendor sunglass bag that I keep telling you about, which you will get for free when you use the promo code podcast on spyoptic.com. I'll post photos of that bag in Instagram. And then they're also throwing in a free spy t-shirt or hat as a thank you for supporting this show. Buy shades, snow goggles, prescription glasses, whatever. Just use promo code podcast and you'll get all those free gifts and you'll support this show. See happy at spyoptic.com. Take off your WSL hat for a minute and let me hit you with some rapid fire opinions. I want your opinions. Um, Who's going to win the world title this year on the men's side and the women's side? Oh, man. Um, On the men's side, I really... I could see Gabrielle coming out guns blazing. Um, you know, it seems like he woke up really in the final laps of 2017. And, and I'd like to think that I, I was, I've been a fan for a while, but I'd like to think that some people that were either on the fence or not fans gained a lot of respect for him 
via his approach at pipe, knowing that he was coming from behind and knowing that it was primarily backdoor and really just nailing his way to getting really close to John, you know, um, and coming from behind. And I think when you look back and you, you listen to a lot of the title holders talk about the years they won the title, they actually referenced that it was the year before where they picked up the momentum. Like that started the season before and carried them through. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind seeing 2019 open up and having John and Gabrielle with two apiece, just based on the sort of dynastic argument. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I think on the men's side, it's a wa- on both sides really, it's a watershed year. So kind of all bets are off. I think. Oh, that I, any thoughts? That idea of um, the year prior being the momentum builder and then executing the following. I'm gonna go Jordy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for this year. I think Jordy's. I, I I think there's a benefit to being kind of overlooked. And right now, Gabe and John John have all eyes on them. Yeah. But Jordy snuck right up to the very end, yeah. certainly up until the last couple of events of the season. Yeah. And um, talking about having that additional gear that Wade Carmichael has that no he can do things that nobody else can do. Jordy. Yeah. Absolutely has power that nobody else has. And so if he can implement that, if he could actually, he can implement that. If he could backside barrel ride, then well, well, that brings me to my, I guess my women's pick, and and the note behind that is, um, yeah, I think Steph's an interesting pick this year because, like Karamis and Jeffries Bay and Sir Franch coming online for the CT schedule is going to have a huge impact on both the men's and the women's, which is why someone like Jordy who already serves J Bay amazing. Surf surf ranch really well and will surf Karamis really well. That's an advantage there. Um, you know, Gabrielle, we'll see how he does. I, I don't, I mean, his, his surfing to me is just so physically inaccessible, like for me to comprehend a lot of times that, like, I don't think there is a weak point. And when people do think there's one, he just goes out and sort of defies that anyway. Totally. But yeah, on the women's side, to me, I think Steph's eager to throw herself back in the mix on title hunt um i think she was really i mean she won the first and last event last season and i think she's going to thrive at Bay and karamis and um if you talk to a lot of people that have surfed uh, or have seen the surfing at the wave sorry the surf ranch um they'll tell you that that agnostic agenda she's the best surfer there really yeah did she work with a coach <sighs> yeah that's a good question i mean i know she has in the past but I mean, she. I, I really don't know if she works with like a technique coach or anyone like that. I mean, she does seem like someone who's been so like naturally gifted at surfing. I know she works really hard at it as well, um, just in terms of fitness and and just continuing to get better. But not in the same way that you see sort of an on-site coach in a lot of other places. I, I can't ever think of. Uh, I can't remember a time where I've seen her with one, but I would love to see her with. Like Micro, for example, like Micro has such great success recently. She she gets nines in heats and then backs it up with a two, you know, like or surfs good through half the event and then can't make it through. So I think she would benefit from some of that. Yeah, I mean, I think consistency. She has a pretty interesting existence, just like observationally. Like she, I mean, when you've achieved so much so young, yeah. you know. Um, and you're sort of world famous and it's like it goes back to like what's the motivation yeah um, but I think she is pretty motivated especially these last couple of years to, to perform and I mean I think probably before that you know before the reinvestment in women's surfing from an elevation standpoint and a quality standpoint you know sometimes for her she's won as much as she had and 
the conditions aren't that great and she's not that motivated I, i've seen her kind of you know not take it that seriously i suppose yeah but that's an interesting in, in the last few years i think she's she's really gunned down but it would be it would be interesting to see her work with a coach and i think some people thrive in that environment yeah. and some people just it it doesn't work you can't corral some people then that's what i would have thought about john john to an extent yeah but he's done well he has and i and i guess it's like the term coach is not universal in no. surfing either like some people are have like very technical coaches that are breaking down where your elbow is on a backhand re-entry and then some people it's more like sense checks you know sounding boards because i always thought that like with kelly it's like what who's what's what what's belly telling kelly but it's just more heat strategy and conditions assessment so that the the surfer can really focus on surfing right mm-hmm. and just use whatever information they have from trusted sources to improve their chances will kelly ever win another world title um i don't think so but i'm sure he'd love to prove me wrong and a lot of other people wrong um you know i think he's achieved more than arguably more than any athlete in history so there's an element of all bets are off because he's broken precedent so many times. So I would never say never, but I don't, I don't think he will, if you want my opinion. Um, I think that the, to, the talent level on tour has gotten so high and the physical conditioning of the surfers on tour has gotten so high that it's, it's a huge uphill battle for someone like him. Um, what, what about you? Do you think he's going to win? I don't think he will. And I agree. He could very well prove us both wrong. I'm not convinced that he even wants to. Like, like I think that um, you're right, the talent level and athleticism and all that, if he committed to those things, he could definitely, I think, win another world title. I haven't seen him commit to those things. I've seen him slowly withdraw, Mm -hmm. and I've seen him also defer his interest. So Mm -hmm. it's like once you build a wave pool company and buy a surfboard company and start a clothing company, those are all deferments of your interest. And if, you know, if he came into this year and was like, no, I'm abandoning, I've handed off all business responsibilities to these people mm-hmm. and I'm here and I'm hitting the gym. Here's my coach. Here's my strategy. Yeah. Yes. I would, I would put money on him at that point. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, it's like you know, for someone who has basically existed as the next best thing in surfing for three decades, which is just yeah. like, like insane for a community like obsessed with the cult of youth basically like it's just it's just a total outlier um yeah i mean it's it 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 is something where the motivation comes into question too right where he won 11 i mean he won 10 like that was sort of the big mountain for him and i think he didn't intend to do anything else but he turned up the next year and kind of won 11 before he knew what had happened and then at that point, you're going, well, you know, it's a prime number. Like, it's no good. like, you get 12 on there. And so, you know, I think for him, he kind of just found himself, you know, treading water a little bit existentially yeah. and trying to figure out what he was. And when you're still winning events and you are that kind of a creature that is just built around that and that it almost breathes new life into you, um, you know, how do you turn it down? Right. right. Because it is such a great life. I mean, one of the things that, has been thrown around here a lot recently with new leadership that it wasn't before, but I totally agree with is, you know, what do the world's best surfers do on their day off? Well, they go surfing. You don't have that in football or tennis or anything else. Like on their days off, they're out doing things they want to do. But for surfers, it's, it's, they want to go surfing. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. 
Will Courtney Conlog ever win a world title? A good question. I mean, she's certainly, you know, just on the motivation side, completely motivated. Um, and I think that there was sort of an outsized expectation that, you know, is across both genders for kids coming out of Orange County or California because it's a home of the surf world and the surf media. Um, and then they get on the world stage either on the QS or the CT and realize that, wow, it's a big, bright world of talent out there. And I need to go back and figure out how to how to compete here. You know, I, I won every event without blinking, you know, back home. And now I'm here and I and I was told I was awesome. Everyone in the industry and the media told me I was awesome. I was winning the world title and I got here and it's like, this is hard. So she is someone to me that since she started, um, has really disregarded those outsized expectations and like gone to work to improve. And she is someone that she does, she trains in fitness and she works with a coach and she works on her boards and she has gotten demonstrably a lot better um, and she can win. So there's no reason to think she can't win a world title, but I'll also say that the, the talent level on tour is so high at the pointy end of the rankings that I think it's still a challenge for someone like Courtney. But she could come out and win three events, no problem. Yeah, I know. And then, and then what, you know? Yeah. But I, it's also interesting. I mean, she's gotten so close a couple times, too, that it's like you wonder in any sport for men or women what that does to you psychologically, right? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Well, do you think she would win one? I, I'm putting my money on her this year. Really? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think she's got it this year. Um, she reminds me of Adriana DeSouza. Uh-huh. The approach, the ethic, the work ethic. The humility, right? Where it's like, I'm not, I'm getting better. Totally. Like the Adriana thing. I don't think she'll quit until she does. For sure, yeah. And I mean, the Adriana thing is crazy. Like, he won the World Juniors at 16. He was king of the air reverse. He was like the first guy. I remember watching him being like, holy crap. Like, this kid can do air, is it North Nairobi, just nailing him, nailing him. Like, qualified on the air reverse. Got on tour and was an air guy. Like, Adriana D'Souza was the air guy when he qualified. Um and just that humility he took into the tour, or at least early on in his experience there, he went back and was like, I need to get better at power and rail surfing and barrel riding. And he did. And, and, I, and still I see to that this in day. too. Yeah, yeah and still For to sure, this day, yeah. yeah. He, is the, he is the most humble world champion I've ever encountered. Yeah. Like, he still like is like every day gets up and goes to work. Yeah, crazy. Uh, okay, rapid fire questions. Kern or Aki? Shit, man, this is... Uh, I mean, they're both like like really transcendent and somewhat, again, inaccessible to me to relate to as a surfer um, or emulate. But um, as long as I'm in the 805, it's Tom for sure. But, but um, as a half Australian and a goofy footer, there's a lot of pain in answering that question. Yeah. Um, well, but I want to hear yours too. Current for sure, dude, because okay, okay. I'm a Californian and regular footer, so there's no yeah. confusion for me. Um, I don't know. I was just exposed to current a lot more growing up for some reason yeah so. the the latest that the ought cast with those two like was so funny like, the roller skating it's i mean the whole thing like i think a lot of people are like wow tom's kind of you know his delivery and what he's saying is a little bit off-putting i'm like you just need to buckle down and listen like he's speaking the truth here guys like you just need to get through it and i totally I, was, disagree really <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he is speaking the truth you are right about that but it's not profound right like i think we all want to put enlightenment on him but nothing he said in that 30 minutes was enlightening at all you know what he, you know what he struck me as he struck me as someone who's like seen too much and like experienced too much that he's kind of elevated to another plane and you need like 
like I really and I I would say that that's probably been the case for him since like the 90s you know like yeah. and it's like and he's such a I humble guy true. anyway that it's like it's just hard for him to communicate with us but sure I'll, I'll back your opinion but but I it's interesting like I don't still waters run deep right so it's sure. not that I think that he's unintelligent no, or that no, he's no, the, the, not there enlightened a lot there and, yeah. or, or just that he doesn't know how to communicate it Mm. Or maybe doesn't know how to communicate it publicly. And I feel the same way with John John, where it's kind of like the um, genius that we see in his surfing. I'm waiting for him to articulate on the podium, and he never does. And it's, and then realize, I'm like, well, it's not that John John isn't a genius, or maybe he is, I don't know. Some people aren't good at communicating. Simple as that. You know what I mean? Or some people just don't have a desire to share their deep thoughts with people. Well, I think that, I think. You know, knowing John better than I know Tom, I think the latter is probably true. And I think you see it with a lot of surfers where they get into the post-heat interview or yeah. they get onto the podium and they're like, everyone else says these five things. I'm going to say these five things and I'm getting off the stage. But I, I, I've sat with Tom before and had conversations with him. I think John's totally like a different individual as well because John, when he's engaged and he's just having a conversation, is super insightful and smart and articulate mm. and funny, which is really like... That's kind of what you want to bring out of them, you know, in the surfing world, too. And certainly for the WSL's perspective, part of it. If that's who they are, you want that to shine through. Yeah. As opposed to the, I guess, sort of the canned, you know, that we see this in every sport, you know, I'm building a house or what, you know, whatever it is, right? Where it's yeah. like everyone knows that. Like, let's just have an opinion. Did you watch the video that dropped yesterday with Mason and Tom Kern? Yeah, the typhoon. Yeah. yeah. Um, just seeing Tom stand up on a couple of lefts. Certainly when he did a turn, but just seeing him stand up on a waist high left in his body positioning, I was like, dude, that guy is a god. Like, just standing on the left, going into a bottom turn, I just need to study that moment. Because his every, like, molecule of his body is just formed perfectly, like, placed perfectly. You yeah, know? I mean, his his signature was always, like, economy of movement, you totally. know, and it's, yeah, I'm with you, though. I, the same thing where I'm like, geez, man. Let me pause it, rewind it, and watch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I watch Mason, and I go, wow, Mason's shredding, but I don't need to study it. Like, I need to study Tom. How, how cool is the uh, like the old school search logo on the board of Mason's? Uh, so good. I was like, wow, some, someone at Rib Curl deserves a bonus for bringing that back, because I'm like, shades of, you know... Um, I'm drawing a blank now. It's the the guy from South Africa, Frankie Oberholzer. Yeah, over. Thank you. Shades of Oberholzer. I'm like, this is this is taking me back. I love it. Uh, he said somebody drew it on his board for him. Mason did. Yeah, I heard that, but then it looked like a sticker. Like, it looked, but they never gave a close. Well up. done. Yeah, it was yeah, very well done. Like... It was very well done. I questioned whether it was a sticker or not. Yeah. Too. Okay, rapid fire that isn't going so rapid. That's okay. Kelly or Andy? Uh, Andy. That's been pretty well documented for me, but I was was and am a big Andy guy. Yeah. I think uh, I think the lines he drew um, and the speed and power with which he drew them are more relevant than ever today and are not replicable. Um, so yeah, definitely Andy. And I don't think, you know, I'd apologize to Kelly, but I don't think he cares. Uh, you know what's interesting is every year at like on AI day on Instagram, I see brand new photos of Andy that I've never seen <laughs> yeah, before. Just, there's some repository out there of it. Just, Who has it? I don't know. They like just the, pop up, dude. The ailments or whatever. Or they cycle back in where you're like, I feel like I've seen that, but I haven't seen it for years. And then you think of it and you're like, I need to get that back. Like, 
but I, I don't know where it is. I don't know where it exists. Well, there's plenty that get regurgitated over and over, but there's, there's a always a few ones, yeah. every year that I'm just like, dude, they're just somehow growing. What about, uh, what about you, Kelly or Andy? Um, I'm going Kelly. Okay. I mean, certainly love Andy for a ton of reasons, but Kelly, dude. Okay. Kelly's king. All right, Carissa or Tyler? Well, that's a tough one. And uh, professional caveat that they're um, they're both lovely people and world-class surfers. Um I really like Caruso's flow, um, and I like Tyler's explosiveness, and they both have, um, I think they both have really inspiring stories. If I, if I had to pick one for 2018, it would be uh, Tyler just to make them three apiece. So nothing against Carissa, but Carissa's, she gets four, and she has to go after Steph, where it's like, well, I'd see all three of them in the mix for the next few years. All right. What about you? I'm going Carissa. Yep. Yep. Um, Indo or Hawaii? Uh, Indonesia. For really? Me. Well, I mean, just, this goes back to just me answering like as a surfer. Um, and for someone like me, like I just get to surf more often. You know, when I go to Hawaii, I have the the occasional survival session. It's a survival for me, but there's, you know, eight-year-olds lapping me around the line right. at Sunset Beach. But I mostly stick to kind of Rockies and gas chambers. Um, and I, I am in total awe. Of, of pipeline have been my whole life basically it's like this amazing gladiatorial pit but it it doesn't need me out there kind of occupying space on those days so yeah as far as surf trips go i indonesia for me what about you have you been to indo yep um i'm fortunate enough i i got to go on a boat trip 10 years ago this year um so i think i i think just being 10 years on i deserve a new one yeah <laughs> kidding um, and then I've been to Bali a few times for events. Okay. Are you going this year? I think so. Yeah. It's all, I mean, it's beautiful. It, 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 it really, it, there's just so many places to surf. It is an interesting experiment in terms of like what has tourism done to this place and what has industrialization right. done to this place. And that is sort of one of the most naturally beautiful places on the planet with these amazing people, um, and figuring out ways to to move that back to uh, you know less polluted arena and a less crowded place and but I mean it's gorgeous. What about you? Hawaii or Indo? I would go Indo for sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, just not that it's uncrowded, but just to kind of get off the map a little bit. Of course. You know, I can't imagine going to Hawaii and um, not interacting with people I know or having to surf with people I know and dinners and things like that. Of course. So yeah. I would prefer just a proper surf trip. By the way, when was the last time you've been on a surf trip? Well, it goes back to like the blurred lines between personal and professional, right? Yeah. Like the last time I went on just like a straight, it was probably 10 years ago. Like yeah, it was me really too. like the last time I, I mean, I try to surf every day if I can. And certainly when we go on work trips, try to carve an hour out. But that's other. not a surf trip. No, it's not. You know, you're there for other reasons. And it's a funny thing, like, you know, doing this job for as long as I did, people, that I know back home that surf are like, man, you must just get the best waves all over the world. It's like, well, yes and no, like you're really fortunate, but you know, if the waves are good, the event's probably on and you're probably working. So when it's off, the waves are probably not good and you're probably surfing and you're probably missing out on your home spot when it's firing too. So it's, it's almost the ultimate curse. You Mm. get to watch the best waves at all times, but then you get to surf when the tide's wrong and the wind sucks. You know? Yeah, I mean, ultimate curse is probably a I mean, it's probably a stretch. It's pretty, worse than mining coal, dude. Yeah, <laughs> it's worse than if you say so. Yeah, um, there's, there's worse fates out there for sure. Um, what happened with Kill the Messenger, your podcast, and 
the B team, right? Was the other one that you were doing? Yeah, I mean, that, the, it, two different stories, and they're not that interesting. The Kill the Messenger one was fun. I was kind of just learning on the job, and probably similar to you guys, like was just excited to talk about things that I didn't see getting talked about a lot. And it was less for me and more about like, well, if I if I talk about this, I'm probably doing it somewhat on Instagram now where it's like, this story or this thread on this story is interesting to me. And if I put it out there in the world, maybe someone will run with it and do something impactful with it or the conversation will evolve that way. So that was kind of the onus behind Kill the Messenger. And did a few episodes and was kind of learning as I went and, and was definitely... Like, like leaning into a more guest driven sort of format because like, you know, people can only listen to me for so long including myself I only listen to me for so long um, and the last one I did was with Steve Sherman who's a seminal surfing photographer and friend of mine and it was a really good conversation I was really like psyched on the conversation but I had to record it over the phone in my car and I just didn't have the technical skills to make it sound good so I was disappointed that I kind of blew that conversation when it got published and then I left for Europe and I had Jeremy Flores lined up to do um, an episode on the curse of being labeled the next Kelly Slater and he was like super into it and I was really excited and then we just got it was one of those events where we just couldn't connect and we both got busy and then I flew out and and so I kind of missed a couple weeks and I, I went okay well and then things at the WSL started transitioning and I thought to myself well when they stabilize maybe I'll, I'll bring it back but I don't know if I'm going to bring that was it's been like over a year now. I don't know if I'm going to bring that one back, but I do think it's like it is a really cool medium. I want to do more of them. I don't necessarily think I want to host them, but I do think the WSL has an opportunity to do something as well. It's like guys, like it's just another form of of communication and bringing conversation into the world. So, um, and then the B team was kind of like a beta test at the WSL. It kind of is more just like a weekend review thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we brought some more back. I, I think it'd be a good idea. And I think that it's sort of a rising tide thing. And yeah. having people like yourself and Scott Bass and Chris Cote and other people that are podcast enthusiasts coming in and cross-pollinating, I think it's really good for the conversation. Yeah. Good. Uh, I always liked Kill the Messenger. I thought you did a good job with it. Oh, thank you. So Yeah, you're welcome. A um, couple of closing questions about media and uh, your surf experience. What are your favorite Instagram accounts to follow? Well, pre- present company excluded, of course. Um, yeah, the surfing ones for me, like the history ones I like. So, you know, Encyclopedia Surfing, which is our friend Matt Warshaw, uh, Surf Core 2001. I don't know who does that, but that's pretty funny. I've never, I'm going to check, it, check out. it out. Yeah, it's we talked it. about it before the mics went on. But. Yeah, and then Surf Ads is another one that's pretty funny. I think they just. They're both kind of just look at old magazines and post photos. And like, Which is, I wish I would have beat them to market on that idea. It's 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 gold because it's, it's like so everyone's gold. like remembers sitting on the toilet and like reading the magazine and being like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. And we still have the magazines. Yeah, no, right? I do we too. all yeah, have a I, giant collection. I had like great aspirations of like I'm going to digitize my collection and tried like one one issue and I was like, that's a disaster. I'm not doing that. Okay, you know where we can beat them to market then is on our VHS collection. Maybe we could we, we could, could. Pub, like digitize that and then post little clips. Here well, but I so, so I had that thought too. But I think it's it all has to be for personal use because I'm sure the music licensing was just non-existent back then, and like 
the lost videos are using like Frank Black and the Pixies. They're like, that's why this section kicks ass, man. Like, and they're like, don't bring that back up because there's a lawsuit out there, I'm sure. But isn't that kind of how Instagram? It, it, it's still you could publish music on it. I think sure, they'll give yeah. you an they'll give you a notification saying this has copyrighted music but you just like click that you disagree with it and yeah. they republish it you know the uh the other one that that i was going to call out was um little street james lewin um don't know it. and that's another one where it's sort of just older older shots but little was, street yeah it's l y t t l e street oh, yes yeah okay i have seen that so what about you what, what do you follow i love um meme accounts <laughs> all about the meme accounts dude it's like it's such a vortex <laughs> it's the best vortex though <laughs> like talking about needing a reprieve from surfing in your daily life yeah exactly yeah. it's like the surf posts that show up i scroll past as quickly as possible yeah and then i get to hood clips or best vines yeah yeah or my one of my favorites is look at this russian yeah, I think I have that one. Doggos doing things is another one. Great, like. yeah. awesome people doing things. That's drunk good. people doing things. Oh, yeah. Send it official. Send, send I think it, is send it officials nuts. You know stuff like that. Um, just because when I was a kid, my favorite show was uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah, but it was only thirty minutes once a week yeah. and I had to see Bob Saget hosting, That's and that right. wasn't cool. And then it would just be somebody like stepping on a rake, which. Wasn't really that exciting. Now it's much more. Um, yeah, the stuff that people much do more intense blows me away. Um, who's the one surfer that you'll stop everything to watch their latest edit? Yeah, there's probably a few, but um, Bobby Martinez really top of my list. Um, we, you know, I I see him around occasionally up up in Ventura County. Um, not not that much, and I think you know we don't get to see him surf that much anymore, like web clip wise. So it's always a treat when he does, but. Yeah, to me, I, I think he he remains probably one of the best goofy footers on the planet. Just like like really ascending to like the perfect line being drawn on some waves. It's really amazing. I fully agree. Tack sharp still to this day. Yeah, which is crazy. crazy. Yeah, um, is he still surfing a lot? Well, I I don't I don't I wouldn't answer for him. I'm not sure. I mean, I I'll see him occasionally, but not that much. But I think he has a pretty good relationship with the guys at Channel Islands, and yeah, the, he's riding different equipment these days. You know, he's riding I think quads mostly, and sort of some different boards, but still rides them in real serious conditions, and still draws just like similar to Curran in the sense of that like economy of movement. Like yeah. he's just so still in between action on a wave. It's it's nuts like it's he's such a good surfer and um but i think he i think he's just mostly cruising with his family and is he making a living off surfing i don't know yeah Hmm. i wouldn't know last video i saw i feel like he had a monster sticker still on his board yeah i mean i think they've been longtime supporters of his but i I also you know i have no idea what people do with their finances really of zero insight but I do think he was one of the the better compensated surfers, sort of before the global financial crisis too. And he should have been like he was amazing. Yeah. Um, and he was amazing inside and outside the jersey. So, I mean, hopefully, he did all right for himself. Like, be an amazing wild card to see in an event someday. Yeah. You know, it's been discussed. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I whether or not he'd be interested, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 All right what, man. what about for you? Sorry. I want to hear no. Um, shoot. That's a great one. I was thinking Torin Martin. Okay, yep, the Need Essentials twin twin guy. Yeah, yep. he's somebody who um, I have no idea where he came from. Yeah. I don't know why he doesn't have more sponsors. Sure. But whenever a clip comes up, it's like definitely I'm going to watch the whole thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, cool. Mason Ho to a certain extent, Tom yeah. Curran definitely. 
And those are kind of the only ones. People, like, it's, I think I've, I'm still influenced really heavily by the original 5-5, five, five, 19 and a quarter, and the idea that you can have a board that makes one foot slop feel amazing, right. and that you can surf in really serious conditions. So when someone like Torin is like, yeah, I ride one twin fin around the world. To me, like, the idea of that kind of quiver killer mentality mm-hmm. is, like, super appealing, where it's like, I, that's kind of the... My obsession with boards is like, okay, well, what's the one board I need um, yeah. to to just take everywhere, you know? And, Otherwise, and, it's a rabbit hole of like, oh yeah, yeah, a board for every condition, yeah. different fin setups, different. And like working in the industry too, you just you're basically mainlining the Kool Aid, you yeah. know, where you're like, yep, I need that one, I need yeah, exactly. whatever. Like, every time I interview a shaper on this show, same thing. It's just like, well, I guess I got to order a board now. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like I'm surfing less and less, and I have yeah. all these surfboards. It's so true, and it's like, man, I just need the one, and I've got like I'm like paralyzed by decision now. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Perfect segue to the final question. What was the last board that you rode? It was a Channel Islands M18 little uh, prototype thing, sort of a small wave beacon of light in otherwise dark times this winter so it was uh yeah it's awesome a little sort of i don't know what you call it sort of a wizard sleeve uh, iteration height width do you know the dems on it yeah i should um it's it's a five eight yeah 19 a quarter two and three eighths probably um what fin setup um i've done both but this one's got a uh, future thrusters Where'd you ride it? What were the conditions? This was, I went down to um, our partners at Waveco, and they have an office in Solana Beach last week. And, you know, driving down to San Diego County from Ventura County, it's a pretty binary option. You're either going to get down there at 6 a.m. or noon um, yeah. traffic-wise. So I got down there at 6, and it'd been a pretty anemic kind of few days in terms of surf, and there was supposed to be a little bump, and I, um, I wasn't meeting until 10. And so I looked around. Their, their office is right at um, Fletcher Cove Park in Solana Beach. So there wasn't really anything to surf there. Checked out Torrey Pines. There's a little bit more. And I'm like, oh, I'm like right next to Blacks. Like, I should just go have a look. And um, there was like half a dozen guys out. And it was chest high and surfable and uh, very much needed. How many times have you surfed the surf ranch? Um, I've been in the water there three different times. Um, one time was kind of picking off scraps from the commissioner's office who were tuning the wave ahead of the, uh, the event um, and, and got a few runs from up the top. I don't think I made any of them. Um, and I'm much more comfortable picking off scraps up there yeah. uh, just in terms of pressure. And then the other two times was, was during those sort of surf voices days. Um, and we weren't in, we, the few WCL staff there weren't in rotation. So we were sitting down the bottom and cheering people on. I think I got, you know, couple event sections that everyone fell on and like so you haven't waste not want not have you ever had a priority wave there yeah yeah definitely the first time like okay. the, i mean we the commissioners were in the water for a while so okay yeah they yeah just probably <laughs> probably want to try picking one off like after the person fell so i was a good candidate to put up top okay yeah because i felt bad for you the day i was there where it was like you made the trek and then we all well, had our scheduled time in the pool. Yeah, and yeah but I mean, it's a funny thing. and It's super cliche because people have said it all the time. They're like, well, just watching people get to surf is like super fun there. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. But like, it really is. Like, if you feel like you, you've gotten your fill there and you've had opportunity, watching people see the place for the first time and get to surf, it's like, it, it is a really kind of feel good experience. So it's totally yeah. worth the trip. And then if people are surfing too well, I just get them to crank it up and have it be unmakeable and sit down the bottom. <laughs> 
call call tell people to to sit deeper in the barrel or whatever savvy all right man thank you thank you yeah gladly Remember about one hour ago when Prodan mentioned this? That those guests will become, you know, your Kelly Slaters and these guests will become your Sean Thompsons and... Kelly, I'm coming for you. But I actually already nabbed Sean. That was actually episode number 13 of Surf Splendor published way back on October 28th, 2013. In case you'd like to check that out, I've posted a link to it in today's show notes which you can also find on surfsplendorpodcast.com, along with all the visuals that accompany everything that we discussed in today's show. If you like this show, I'd encourage you to rate and review it on iTunes. One recent review from Charlesa called it, quote, good campfire convo and said, fun listening, even if you don't surf. Great for old grumps like me and youngsters who need to learn a thing or two about surf and the rules of the road, end quote. Jake the Snake also gave me five stars for, quote, the boldness of putting his own face and chop hop on the cover, end quote. So whether for the show content or my hair, I will take it. I'll take any five-star review. Um, Those reviews help with this show's ranking in iTunes, which helps new listeners find the show. So thank you for that. You should also just share the show with friends, as Prodan said, Surf media is evolving, and it'd be amazing to see A-listers come here to celebrate their contest wins, to share breaking news, discuss design, board designs, that sort of stuff. And the factor that will dictate whether or not that happens is the audience size. So you can grow this audience by sharing the show with friends, tag them on Instagram posts, or maybe just share it on their Facebook page so that other people could see it. And then that's your job, grow the audience, and my job is to keep pumping out this content. Thank you for that. I also need to thank BJ Ondera for creating the custom ad music in today's show. You'll hear much more of her work in future episodes. Also, thank you to Alex Gray for your help today. And I also need to mention Spy. They did a ton of work to make this partnership happen. There's no plug-and-play model for incorporating advertising into podcasting. We are kind of creating the wheel as we go. So it requires a lot of work and ingenuity within the company to firstly recognize that there's even value here, and then secondly, to help design the partnership. And Spy really went above and beyond for me. One thing that they did was design and manufacture these Surf Splendor bags that I talked about in the show. They're sunglass bags, and um, they're including that for free with your purchase, along with throwing in a t-shirt or a hat. They're doing all of that because they're fans of this show and they want it to grow. So again, having that insight, having that ingenuity is, um, I don't expect that of any brand, but it's really amazing that that they have the foresight to see it. So if you can support them, thank you. Maybe you don't need sunglasses or goggles now, but when you do, make sure to check them out. Buy it from spyoptic.com. Use the promo code podcast so Spy can track it, and then you'll get those bonus gifts. Lastly, thank you to Dave Prodan and the WSL for hosting me. I'm very much looking forward to this 2018 season, which starts at Snapper on March 11th worldsurfleague.com is the current home for all of that information make sure to follow and until next week this is david scales for surf splendor reminding you to get back in the ocean share some waves and shred on
Have you ever considered that it's all a simulation? Earth is just a sus self-propagating program running on a quantum computer controlled by the reptilian terrestrial fuckwits on a different plane of space-time. You think you have some independent thoughts, but it's actually some pubeless iguana spawnlets high school experiment. <laughs> What's the image? It's a, it's a, it ties it into like Luke, he, he says, he goes off, he goes, Luke Egan couldn't give less of a fuck about simulation theory. He's focusing on whacking the piss out of it on a 6-6 round pin. <laughs> it's, it's our... That's awesome.